This is the Financial Freedom Fighters podcast. What's up, everybody? This is the Financial Freedom Fighters podcast. I am your host, Jacob Sandoval. I am here with my co-host, Mike Magno. How you doing? I'm good, Jacob. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. There's a heat wave in California right now. It was 94 degrees. And I don't know about you, Mike, but I'm not an extreme weather guy. I don't like extreme cold. I don't like extreme hot. I like 65 to 75. I like that 10 degree variance and that's where I live all day and that's where I'm happy. So 94, it's a little bit too hot for me. I don't know. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, um, I'm with you. I, I don't like the extreme heats. Um, you know, we get obviously all the weathers right in where in, in Northern Ohio here. Um, I know in where you live in the Bay area, it stays pretty consistent year round, uh, typically, um, in that zone where you like it. Um, so yeah, it's, yeah. It, it's tough. I know this week we've had a beautiful, we've got a beautiful end of the summer and the beginning of fall. Nice. We have another fun topic for you folks today. Mike and I are talking about stocks versus real estate. It is an age old debate within the investment community. And today Mike and I are going to try to bring a very objective perspective. Obviously, Mike and I are both real estate investors, but prior to being a real estate investor, I was predominantly a stock market investor. And so I have a decent amount of experience there. And Mike also does a little bit of stock investing as well. So we are going to kind of pit these two investment vehicles against each other. And we're going to have a round by round type of debate on the merits and the weaknesses of each investment. And so, Mike, do you have anything to say before we kind of jump into the episode for today? Yeah, I um, I, I like this um, this topic today for us to discuss because I think that's um, a lot of people who want to get into real estate. That's where they have a lot of their wealth currently is in the stock market, and they want better returns, right? They want the power of leverage. So there's, you know, there's obviously we're going to debate all the pros and cons to both, both strategies. Um, but I think it's an interesting topic to, to talk about on our, on what we're doing, you know, putting it, putting out this, this particular type of content that, you know, that you and I chose to do. And I think it's, um, you know, I think it's a, a good conversation to have for people. So I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. So if we take two steps back, there are a few different types of people with respect to their finances and, and the, the relationship that they have to money. There's one set of people who are what I'll call spenders. They spend basically everything that they earn. You know, th This is the paycheck to paycheck population. And this is the reality for a lot of Americans. Uh, I think the latest stat is 60% of Americans, Mike, live paycheck to paycheck. So there are a lot of people that's it in this bucket. And you're never going to get ahead if you're kind of stuck in that mode of spending everything that you make. So that's one segment. Another segment is what I'll call the savers, Mike, who are doing a little bit better than the spenders, but the extra money that they have, they're just putting it into their bank account or effectively putting it under their mattress where they're earning 
basically no interest, 0.01% on their money. And they're never going to get ahead as well, right? Because you touched on it last episode, Mike, but the value of your money is decreasing over time. So there's the spenders and they're the savers. And if you hope to achieve financial freedom, you have to shed these identities, the identity of the spender, the identity of the saver, and you have to shift your mindset to be the mindset of an investor. Somebody who allocates their capital to efficient investment vehicles that are going to earn them a return that is going to allow them to achieve financial freedom. But then the question becomes, what do I invest in? The two investment vehicles that have withstood the test of time are stocks and real estate. Those are the two biggest investment vehicles. So Mike and I are going to jump into which investment vehicles are better. We're going to have a nice fun debate. It's going to be a seven round fight between stocks and real estate. And each round is going to be based on a different criteria. So Mike, let me run through the criteria really quickly and then we'll kind of jump right in. The first criteria is appreciation. How much will the value of this asset increase over time? So that's round number one. Round number two is cash flow. How much cash will this investment generate? Cash flow. Number th- round number three is level of effort. How much work is this investment going to require on my part, the investor? That's round number three. Round number four, volatility. How much is this investment going to move up and down over time? Round number five is leverage. Can I borrow money to purchase this asset? Round number six is liquidity. How easily can I turn this investment into cash? And last but not least is tax benefits. So that is seven rounds, seven rounds. And we are going to pick a winner for each round. And we'll kind of assess and regroup at the end to talk about the merits of both. And so let's jump into round number one, Mike. Let's jump into round number one. I'm going to kick us off. Round number one is appreciation. Appreciation. So stocks are famously known for achieving an average annual return of about 10%. If you put your money in the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest publicly traded companies in the US, if you put it in that index, you would be getting around a 10% return on average over a long period of time. If you look back at any 30-year period in history, that is basically what the return would be, which is a really, really strong return to kind of put real numbers on that. If 30 years ago from today, you invested $10,000 into the S&P 500, 30 years ago, you put $10,000. Today, that would be worth $165,000 approximately. So you put 10,000 in, it grew at a rate of 10% per year. 30 years later, it is $165,000. Not too shabby, not too shabby of a return. So that is the typical kind of appreciation of the stock market. Now, what about real estate? What about real estate? If we look at the average annual increases nationally, price appreciation of homes, if we look at that same 30-year period, the average appreciation is roughly 4% in that same 30-year period. So less than half of the returns of the stock market, stocks are the clear winner, right? Uh Hold on, hold on. Not so fast, not so fast. There's a really big assumption that's being made when you make that comparison. You're assuming that you can actually achieve the same returns as the S&P 500 index. That is a massive, massive assumption. 
Here's an interesting stat. 94% of US fund managers underperform the average returns of the stock market. So Mike, these are big shot Wall Street guys whose sole job it is to beat the S&P 500. It's their sole job. So they spend all day, every day trying to beat the S&P 500. 94% of them fail. 94% of them fail. So what chance realistically does the mom and pop investor, you, Mike, picking stocks, me, Jacob, just like picking stocks, what chance do we have to actually beat the S&P 500? Pretty slim. Pretty slim. And there's also the component of emotional selling. I have made so many bad calls with respect to socks. I bought it at the height and then I sold it at the crash. And so many investors make that same mistake because it's an emotional game. So the pointed stat here, I heard this on the Money with Katie show, another personal finance podcast. And she said that the average return for the typical investor is actually 5%. So not the 10% of the S&P 500, about 5%, half of that. And so it is much, much closer than it looks if we're just talking straight appreciation. But if we just want to very simplify this, let's say straight appreciation, stocks still edge this out. But it's a lot closer than you think because of the emotional selling component, because of the fact it's really hard to actually achieve the returns of the S&P 500. So it's a lot closer. But I'm calling this one for stocks because this is what they're famously known for is appreciation. And knowing that stat, actually researching that has actually forced me to shift my stock investing strategy, Mike. I was a stock picker before. I thought I was real slick. And I thought that I could see things that other fund managers couldn't see. And I just stopped all that. I stopped all that. I only invest in index funds now. I'm, I'm just, I've come to grips with it that I'm not, I'm not good enough. And so I only invest in index funds now because I do want that 10% return because it is very solid. So I'm calling stocks take round one, Mike, but I'll pass it over to you. What are your thoughts on kind of the appreciation component? Yeah, appreciation obviously is a is a huge piece of what people are looking for in their portfolios, whether it's in real estate or in the stock market. Um, I think the hardest thing too for <clears throat> the stock market investor is holding on to it for that long. It's much easier to hold on to a piece of real estate for twenty or thirty years than it is for you to hold on to that hundred shares of Apple stock. You know what I mean? So, um, it, so it makes it much more much more difficult. Um, you know, and then we'll have people, you know, you have people come to us and say, well, what about forced appreciation in real estate? And I mean, there's, there's other ways to accelerate the appreciation. And then if you look at markets like California versus Ohio, well, obviously you guys have appreciated a much higher rate over the last 30 years than we have. Um, but then in the, in the, the reverse, you know, you live in San Francisco Bay area, your guys' prices are down this year. Ours aren't. So it, it you know, it, it it's tough. But they both, you know, they both are going to offer you appreciation. It's what you do with that appreciation once you get it, and that's where mm-hmm. I think, you know, real estate will will ultimately, you know, win out to- in total. I think um, through our conversation today. But you know, there's certainly, I mean, if you look at like what Nvidia is doing this year, right? Uh, I mean, it's it's nutty. I mean, it's it's up like two hundred percent this year. You know, so for those people who bought Nvidia, you know, eighteen months ago or two years ago when it was at the bottom, and have held and have held on long enough, right? Yeah, absolutely. It is 
important to kind of weigh all factors. And it's not always that black and white. But we'll say stocks take round one, right? Edges it out, but stocks take round one in appreciation. Stepping into round two, I'll have you kick this round off, Mike, but it is cash flow. Yeah. So cash flow, you know, for the for the real estate investor, how do we define cash flow? So, you know, cash flow is obviously the money that you get at the end of the month above and beyond all your expenses. And then also, I also categorize in some reserves as well, which is actually still cash flow, even more cash flow. But, you know, for the for the investor, they want to set aside some money for expenses that you're going to ultimately you you will have. Right. So, you know, in terms of the different types of areas to invest in in real estate, you know, people come to like my area for that cash flow. Um, and you may at the end of the day get two or three hundred dollars per month, four hundred dollars per month in cash flow. And that money is after principal, interest, taxes, insurance, your property management expense, and then whatever reserves that you set aside. You know, I t- personally, I just set aside 10%. That's just my own personal thing. Um, so you've got that. And while ca- some cash flow does exist in the stock market, it's only in the stocks that offer you some type of dividend. And, and the yields on those stocks are much lower in terms of percentage basis, you know, the, uh, what is it? Real realty income, right? Like people love that stock. I actually own some, it has a huge dividend yield of, I don't know, 4% and they pay a monthly dividend, which is cool. But unless you own a million dollars of that stock, <laughs> you're, you're not getting a ton of cash flow from it. You know? So that's where I think, you know, the cash flow would, would certainly go into the real estate, um, side of the uh, the ledger. Absolutely. Absolutely. So completely agree there. While appreciation is a major component of building long-term wealth, ultimately cash flow is what pays the bills. Cash flow is what allows you to escape the rat race. It's what allows you to achieve financial freedom because you can't pay the bills with appreciation, right? You You alluded to this earlier, Mike, but you have to do something with that appreciation eventually to achieve that financial freedom. So cash flow is king in the financial freedom world. And hands down, hands down real estate is a much, much better cash flow vehicle. So I'll just throw in some specific numbers here to add color to the point that you were making, Mike. So let's take that same S&P 500 investment vehicle, right? And let's say we had a hundred grand. We have a hundred grand to dump into something. And let's say for the savvy stock market investor, they're not trying to beat the market because they know that they can't. And so they put it all into the S&P 500. The dividend yield that Mike was talking about for the S&P 500 is 1.6%. 1.6%. So on an investment of $100,000, you will have annual cash flow of about 1600 bucks, right? So a little over... A hundred bucks a month for a hundred thousand dollar investment. To to Mike's point, that's not a lot of cash flow. That's not a lot of cash flow. You can't even pay for Barry's boot camp on a monthly basis with that. And so, not a good cash flow vehicle. The S and P five hundred. Let's take that same hundred thousand dollars and let's say that we're going to buy a property in Cleveland, Ohio. I think people will be pretty shocked, Mike, but you can buy a three-bed, two-bath house, cash in a decent 
working class neighborhood for a hundred grand. You can keep me honest here, Mike. Yeah. Can can you do that? It's certainly possible, right? Yeah. You, I could go. I could pull up the MLS right now. I could find us probably four or five properties in and around the neighborhood where I invest. We could find a property somewhere in the hundred thousand dollar range that I could go out tomorrow and put a tenant in there for eleven hundred dollars. If you want to be a successful real estate investor, you have to know how to run the numbers. You can download my free rental property calculator and deal analysis guide by heading to cashflowsaga.com slash tools. Again, that's cashflowsaga.com slash tools. Now back to the show. So let's let's run that scenario. Let's let's be conservative even, Mike. Let's say we you hook up with Mike Magno and you say, Mike, I have a hundred grand. I want to buy a property cash in a decent neighborhood, three bed, one and a half bath or two bath. And I want to buy it in cash. Let's run the numbers on that. So Mike is going to obviously find you something that is going to fit the 1% rule. And the 1% rule says that the house has to rent for at least 1% of the cost of the property. So for a $100,000 house, it needs to at least rent for $1,000. That's the type of property that Mike is going to suggest to you. It probably, like he said, will be a little bit more, 1100 1200 But let's be conservative. Say we can do it for 1000 So that's $12,000 in annual income, which is great, but we're not factoring in our expenses. Just to do some quick math, let's say that our expense ratio is 50%, Mike. Right? 50%, which is pretty typical. I would say pretty typical. So now we're down to 6K in annual income. And because we bought this property in cash, Mike, we don't have any debt service. We don't have any debt service, right? So now we're doing 6K a year on $100,000. So that is the cash on cash return. That is effectively the yield. That's the dividend yields for this property is 6%, right? And this is an average deal, an average deal that we're finding bought in cash. So that is what we're talking about. That's $500 a month on that same $100,000 investment and you can do better than that. A 6% cash on cash return, a 6% yield is good, especially in this market, but it is not out of this world a home run deal by any stretch of the imagination. And so to compare that to the stock market cash flow that you're going to see, there's no competition here. There's no competition. And Mike did allude to this, right? There, there are sophisticated dividend investors and there are dividend strategies. But when it comes to your average investment, Real estate in the cash flow realm is always, always going to beat the stock market. And that is why real estate is kind of regarded as the path to financial freedom. Because eventually you're going to need to turn whatever wealth you have into cash flow to leave the rat race. And real estate is the most time tested vehicle to, to be able to achieve that. So I think round two easily goes to real estate. So we are at. One and one. Stocks took round one. Real estate took round two. I will jump us into round three. And this one is level of effort, Mike. Level of effort. And so what do we mean by level of effort? There's a couple of things that we're talking about here is one, how much work is this going to take? How much work is their investment going to require from me, the investor, to research it, to acquire it, to manage it, and to you know do all the things do all the things so that's one element of it how much work and then the second element of it is what is the barrier to entry how much is exactly actually going to take to get into this investment so there's two kind of elements to this and 
I think this one is pretty straightforward in my opinion, but we were talking about this mic, but you can open up your Robinhood app, cl click a couple of buttons, and uh, you're, you're a bona fide stock market investor, right? You're a bona fide stock market investor. And just because you bought that NVIDIA stock or just because you bought that Apple stock, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, is not going to call you up and uh, ask you to make a couple of decisions on uh, what Apple's supposed to be doing for their Q4 plans, right? They're not going to ask you that. There's, there's no work required. And you can be a part owner in Apple for as little as $1, probably even less, right? With fractional investing right now. So barrier to entry for stocks is super low, literally requires no work. You might do some research and you probably have to manage your emotions with the stock market, but no one's going to be expecting you to do anything once you become an owner of that stock. And I'll pass it over to you, Mike, but that's not quite the case with real estate. Yeah, no, you make some really great points there with regards to how easy it is to literally buy stocks nowadays, right? You can just open your app, deposit some money, and boom, you're you're a stock market investor. Real estate, not the same way. And why is that? Well, typically it's much more expensive, right? We just talked about a hundred thousand dollar property, which you know, in in today's world, with the when the average home price in America is over four hundred thousand. $100,000 property seems like a steal, but still $100,000. So you know, for those people who don't have $100,000, they're going to have to leverage the purchase. And, and leveraging that purchase means going to a lender and borrowing almost all of the money, right? You're going to borrow on a single family home, non-owner occupied investment property. You're going to borrow 80%. And then how does the bank underwrite you, right? So they're going to check your credit. They're going to check your bank statements. They're going to check your income. They're going to check your tax returns. They're going to look at all these different aspects of you because they're investing in you as well. So it, it's very, very difficult, right? Then on top of that, you have to tar you have to find a target market, right? Um, you know, for you, Jacob, you you're in San Francisco right now, and I'm sitting in you know suburban Ohio, right, suburbia. Yep. And for, for you to invest here, you have to find people that you know, like, and trust. Obviously, you know, you and I have become friends and we've invested together. And But that didn't just happen overnight, right? So for, the, for that person who's going to invest in real estate, unless you're investing in your local market where you can actually physically go see and touch these things, you have to rely on that trusted network of people. So that takes some, some time and energy, right? Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, we talked, we talked about it in the last episode, right? The whole inventory, just where the, the market is today. It's very difficult to find properties that are going to meet all this criteria that we've laid out. You know, it's time consuming, right? Like you have to search for deals. Your agent has to search for deals. You have to talk about the deals. You have to look at all the numbers of the deal. Does it make sense? It's a much more strenuous process than opening up your cell phone, and click, click, click. Okay, cool. I bought some stocks. And and you didn't even touch on like the property management aspect of it. And even if you get a property manager, it's very important to know that you're still going to need to manage the manager. You're still also going to need to make a ton of decisions. One of the tenants in my triplex is consistently, consistently late. She pays late fees every single month. And I'm like, what is going on with this? I get a message from my property manager says, hey, this person is on social security. They only get one paycheck per month and it happens on the 15th. So they're consistently late because they just don't have enough money on the first 
to be able to make that payment on because their paycheck comes on the 15th, can you allow her to move her due date to be closer to her payment date? And obviously I said yes, knowing the details of this, but this is just an example of some of the kind of inquiries you're going to get for your property manager. And sometimes there's going to be bigger things. Sometimes there's going to be bigger things. And so just to say, oh, I have a property manager. I don't have to do anything. There'll be days, there'll be there'll be entire months where I don't talk to my property manager at all. And that's not abnormal. But then there's going to be weeks where you talk to them every other day, just depending on what's going on with the property. And that's just something if you were, you have to know that this there is work involved, even when you do have a property manager. So I'm sure you have stuff to say on that too, Mike. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we've talked about it on previous episodes, property management. I've said it time and time again, I'll say it till, you know, I don't do this anymore. It's the most yeah. difficult piece of this puzzle. You know, I personally can right now I manage my own properties and I'm going to do that for now. Um, and it saves me some money. I don't have a huge portfolio, uh, but eventually I'll probably get away from that and I'll be working with a property manager and, and experiencing those same things that you experience. Um, I'm dealing with it. I'm dealing with it today. One of our tenants is late with the rent. So, you know, it, it happens. It's not the best thing in the world, but we'll, we'll, we'll work through it. Yep. So to kind of round this out, and I'll say one more point because I think it's important. We are talking about rental property investing versus the stock market. There are investment vehicles within real estate that can be as passive as the stock market for sure. I'll throw out a couple. Real estate syndications. You can invest in these private syndications where the syndicators, a group of people, are raising a bunch of money and you're taking down a big deal together, right? And you're a limited partner, an LP in this deal. So that's an example. You can invest in REITs, right? Real estate investment trust. And, and that actually transacts exactly like a stock. And then there's crowdfunding, right? Before I actually jumped into real estate investing, I looked into things like Fundrise and things like that. There are options in re- to be exposed to real estate that are more passive. But what Mike and I are talking about, which is what we do is active investing. Active investing in real estate. You are actually the owner of that property and you are operating that property. So just want to clarify that point. And when we're talking about active real estate versus stock market, the clear winner in this case is stocks. So stocks take round three quite handily. 